Today we're talking about a man named Ambrose. Today's episode is brought to you by Laura Lee Productions. Do you want to move your ministry to the next level? Look, God has given you a message. Let's get that message to the largest possible audience. The best way to do that today, podcasting. Recording your message, that's the easy part, but then you have to edit it, produce it, and make sure it's on all the podcast apps. For that, what you really need is an editor and a producer, and hiring someone can be expensive. And that's where Laura Lee Productions comes in. We'll take your raw audio, we'll edit it, we'll use voice actors to produce great introductions and conclusions, and create advertisements for your sponsors or the events you're promoting. And then we'll produce your podcast and make sure it gets to everyone. No need to hire an editor or a producer or a voice actor. We've got you covered. So go to laureleeproductions.com and we'll have that in the show notes below. All right, today we're talking about Ambrose. We're in Malone. The church is electing a new bishop and everyone has ideas of who it should be. Men are shouting and yelling different names of men they want as bishop. Men running for the position are answering questions as others are yelling accusations at them. There's a huge divide between those who follow the Nicene Creed and those who follow the Arian teaching that Jesus and God are not the same person. Both groups want their man as leader and inside both of those groups are different men who want the job. It's loud and a little unruly. Sitting at the front of the room in a chair of the bishop is the governor, Ambrose. He's not very happy with what he's seeing. This is not how we thought the church would be acting when picking a new leader. He had heard stories of the brave men and women who had stood strong while being eaten by lions, burned alive, beheaded, beaten to death. But these men? These men can't even pick a leader with breaking down into fights. Ambrose was very disappointed, but he was about to become even more disappointed. In the back of the room, a little boy is trying to see what's going on. He pulls his dad's sleeves and gives him the look. You know the look. The look that says, pick me up. His dad lifts him up. I still can't see. Who's the new bishop? I can't see. His dad lifts him higher and places the little boy on his shoulders. The boy scans the crowd and looks to the front of the stage. He sees a man in the bishop's chair and claps loudly. Then he screams to his dad, look, Ambrose is bishop. Ambrose is bishop. For a second, there's silence in the room. And then someone yells out, Ambrose is bishop. Then another man joins in, then another and another, and soon the crowd is calling and chanting, Ambrose is bishop. Ambrose is bishop. Ambrose is angry. The church is supposed to be picking a new bishop, and they're picking me, someone with little knowledge of the Bible, someone who's hardly spent any time in the church. This is a disgrace. I am hereby calling this meeting to a close. You must all leave now and go home. The crowd doesn't listen. They begin to chant louder, Ambrose is bishop. The elders see this as a good sign. The two groups have been so divided that at times the elders have wondered if an actual civil war might break out. Now they're united. One problem, to be a bishop you have to be priest, and to be a priest you have to be a deacon, and to be a deacon you have to have taken communion, and to have communion you have to be baptized, and Ambrose not even baptized. The elders convince the crowd to go home, but then they convince Ambrose to be the bishop. They baptize him, give him communion, declare him a deacon, and then declare him a priest, and then make him bishop. After becoming bishop, Ambrose took his whole fortune and gave it to the poor. 
By the time Ambrose became bishop, politics have changed greatly. Instead of the Senate trying to force the church to bow to them, the Senate now really has to ask the church for permission. Rome has been attacked on a regular basis by different groups of Goths, and these groups at first seemed like an easy win for the Romans. I mean, the Rome was the greatest empire of all time. They had an army that was brutal and powerful, and Rome controlled most of the known world at the time. But shockingly, the Goths were winning battles, and some very significant battles. The Senate was made up of mostly pagans, and they blamed their losses on the Christian and the lack of worship in Rome to the pagan gods. One god in particular the Senate wanted to reinstate for worship was the goddess Victory. The idol was a large globe with Victory standing on top with her arms raised in Victory. The idol had sat in the Senate for over a hundred years, but under Constantine's son, the statue had been removed. And now the Senate thinks maybe under Ambrose, it can be reinstated. Ambrose isn't really part of the church. I mean, he was a governor and then he became bishop really by fluke. Maybe he'll see the importance of Roman culture and the need to bring liberty back to the Senate. Having liberty in the Senate will rally the troops. It will bring a much needed spirit back to Rome. At the time, the emperor was a child, so his mother, Justine, was running things, and she claimed to be the voice of her son, the emperor. The Senate approached Empress Justine. Now, Ambrose has power over the empress and convinces her to say a quick no. Ambrose may not have wanted to be bishop. He may have been upset that the church made him bishop, but he is a Christian, and under his watch, no idols were returned to the Senate. The church is empowered by Ambrose standing against the Senate, and a group of men decide they're going to break down the last idol the pagans are worshipping. The Serpan Temple is at the very top of a large triangle-shaped staircase. If you remember all the way back to our episode on the mystery religion, the first temple built was to Nimrod at the top of the Tower of Babel. Since then, there's been the same format has been used over and over, and you can find these shapes all over the world. Serpent's temple was at the top of one of these, and the belief was that if anyone touched or moved his statue, it would cause an earthquake so powerful all of Rome would be destroyed. One afternoon, at the bottom of the stairs, a crowd was growing. Men and young boys with swords and hammers and clubs were jumping with excitement. Today, they were going to destroy the temple and the statue once and for all. There was no fear, just adrenaline and excitement. One man started up the stairs with a holler, and soon the whole group was running up the stairs. The adrenaline rushed through them and gave them the power and the endurance to make it to the top and rush right into the temple at an amazingly fast pace. Once in the temple, though, they stopped partly because they were out of breath and partly because a little bit of fear crept in. The men were breathing hard, bent over, recovering from the run. They were sweating. The clubs, swords, and hammers seemed really heavy now. No one moved. Eventually, the men were standing normal again and looking at the statue. He looked angry and he seemed to be staring right at them. What if it was true? What if they destroyed the statue and he sent an earthquake to destroy all of Rome? It was eerily silent in the temple, especially after the loud noise of the men hollering as they had climbed the long stairs. All you could hear was the heavy breathing of the men still recovering from the stair run. Then one man walked forward. He was a Christian member of the Roman army. Every eye was on him. He walked to the statue, took his sword, and sliced a part of the head of the statue off. Suddenly, a screaming noise came from inside the statue and cloud-clicking noises, and the men all stepped back, waiting. 
And then a large pack of rats came running out of the hole of the statue's face. The men started laughing. The great statue was nothing but a home for rats. Another man hollered and ran to the statue, hitting it with his club. And then all the men at once pounded on the statue, tearing it to the ground and into small pieces. The rats all ran and scattered throughout the temple, down the stairs and into the fields. And there was no more paganism in Rome. Ambrose began preaching every Sunday and became known as the preacher for the educated man. He was articulate and could break down arguments people had. Ambrose was a firm believer in the Nicene Creed and made it his mission to rid the church finally and once and for all of all of those who did not hold to the Nicene Creed. One of those people fighting him on the Nicene Creed was the Empress Justina. The Senate convinced the Empress to hire a smart young man named Augustine. Some people call him Augustine. He would be the voice of the Empress. Augustine had been raised in a partly Christian home and could argue the Christian faith or could argue against it. Augustine had a disdain for the Christian faith. His mother had tried to teach him. He thought it was for stupid people and not for smart men like himself. He had no problem arguing for or against any side in a theological debate because in his eyes it was all just stupid. Justine hired Augustine to be her voice, and in doing it, also the voice of the emperor, who was at this point 12 years old. The Senate hoped that Augustine would turn the people against Ambrose and prove his ideas of Christianity were stupid. They really wanted the people's hearts to return to the pagan gods. The Senate believed it was the only way to save Rome. Augustine was the voice of Justine and would lay out her plans for tax increases and other things that would normally make the people angry. But Augustine could do it in a way that actually made the people applaud. But one day, Justine demanded that Ambrose give one of the churches to the people still following the teachings of Arian, the belief that Jesus and God are not the same. Ambrose refused. And it was Augustine's job to convince the people Ambrose was wrong in not giving Justine one of his churches. Augustine was trying to convince the people that for the sake of unity, the church should be given to Justine. The Senate sent in soldiers and demanded the church. Ambrose and a large crowd of people locked themselves in the church and refused to leave. Actually, one of the women who locked themselves in the church was Augustine's own mother, Monica. Eventually, the Empress Justine backed down, and the Senate realized they were not going to be able to defeat Ambrose. And what happened to Augustine? Well, we're going to talk about that young man in the next episode. While the church had ended the pagan worship and cultural aspects in Rome that went along with that, there were many other cultural practices that were still very unifying to Rome. One of those was sports, and especially the chariot races. You're standing in a home with two young boys. They come running into the house. They have painted their faces with green something all over it, and one's pretending to be a horse, while the other one runs behind holding onto a rope, which is tied around the young boy's waist, and they're yelling with glee. Their father stops them. Take it outside, boys. Father, how many more days until the race? It's still a few weeks away, boys. And remember, it might not even happen. There's another man standing with the father and the two men look displeased. With all the things that have changed in Rome, we need the races. It's what reminds us that we are Roman. The boys begin chanting, we are Roman, we are Roman. That's right, we are Roman. The Romans are powerful. Yeah, strong, yeah, and win every time. This year, the green's gonna win. That blue chariot's going down. No chance, right, father? Well, that depends. If the charioteer gets out of jail in time, I can't believe he got himself arrested. The other man chimes in. I can't believe the governor won't release him. What a... The father cuts him off. Yeah, yeah, we know how you feel, but a crime is a crime. 
The other man pounds his fist against the table, making the two boys jump. No, the races have to happen. It's the only thing in my life that keeps me going. I work, 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 and our taxes keep going up, up and up. Nothing is good. I wait all year for this one day. I don't care what he did. He needs to be set free. The races have to happen. And if the governor doesn't let him out, he's going to pay. The father walks outside, pulling the other man with him. I don't want that kind of talk in front of my boys. We believe in following laws. I want my boys to respect the law. If you're thinking about doing something rash, rethink it. Don't throw your life away. Everything you've worked for, it's not worth it. That man was planning something, and that night a group of men broke into the governor's home, took him from his bed, pulled him into the streets, beat him, and dragged him through town until he was dead. They then took his dead body to the jail and demanded the freedom of the charioteer. I guess the races would happen after all. The ruler of Rome was at this point a man named Theodosius. He claimed to be a Christian and he was good to the church. He got along well with Ambrose, but Ambrose warned him often that he had a bad temper and that one day it would get him into trouble. Theodosius was a good friend with the governor that the mob had killed. When word got to him that the government had been killed in such a brutal way, he pounded his fist against a wall and ordered, kill them all, go to the games and kill them all. The games are in full swing. On one side, men, women, and children wave green flags in the air. And on the other side, blue flags are waving in the air. There's happy shouting and sounds of metal cups banging together as the people cheer the races. One father with his two boys, happily dressed in all green with green flags, is wondering if he should be there. He knew what happened to the governor and he knew it was wrong, but his boys wanted to see the games. They've been waiting so long and he wanted to see them too. The soldiers entered through the gates and into the arena. The gates were closed behind them and locked. No one could leave. The soldiers drew their swords and started killing. Crowds tried to run, but there was nowhere to run and there was nowhere to hide. The father with his two boys holds his boys and yells to the soldier, please, please, all I have is these two boys. I raised them to obey the laws. Please, they're so young, don't kill them. And the soldier stops for a minute. The boys are so young and dressed in their green colors. The look of panic and fear in their eyes as they cling to the father. The sounds of screams and death all around them. The soldier looks at the father. I will let one live so your name will continue. Pick what one lives and I'll make sure he survives. The children turn to their father, screaming and begging for their life. I, I cannot choose a boy. I cannot choose for one of my boys to die. Please, please let us live. You're taking too long. The soldier runs his sword through both the boys and they die in their father's arms. He then kills the father. For three hours, the soldiers kill. For three hours, they're screaming begging, children trying to hide, mothers and fathers begging for their babies' lives for three hours. In the end, more than 7,000 men, women, and children are dead. The soldiers leave the arena and behind them a pile of dead bodies are all that is left from the games. A few have survived, hidden away in corners, under bodies. They live to tell the stories. The story of the father forced to choose what son will live who ultimately died with both his sons became the most famous of all the stories. And the stories reached Ambrose. He was heartbroken. The church was in total disbelief and grieving. Everyone knew someone who had died that day. The stories also reached Theodosius and suddenly the horror of what he had called for became reality. 
This is the reality that world leaders would face for generations to come. In anger, calling for the death of innocent people in reaction against something that was truly evil. Yes, what the mob had done was wrong and evil. And yes, there was probably no way to find everyone who was part of that mob and bring them to justice. And yes, people needed to know that this act was not acceptable and that there would be people held accountable. But killing over 7,000 people, most of whom were not part of the mob, most of whom were innocent, little children, mothers, that had been the wrong response. Theodosius did what a man with regret does. He went to church. As Theodosius entered the church, Ambrose met him. You're not welcome here, Theodosius. What you have done is very wicked. You cannot come here and you must leave. Now remember, Theodosius was the most powerful man on the planet at this point, and he had just called for the death of over 7,000 people. Standing in front of him and telling him he was not welcome was either brave or stupid. Theodosius stood looking at Ambrose, but he had not come to the church looking to take the church or to fight Ambrose. He had come looking for forgiveness. Theodosius started to shake and then fell to his knees, his face buried in his hands. He wept loudly and his whole body shook. Finally, he spoke through muffled tears. My soul cleaves to the dust. God quicken me. He fell face to the ground and cried. The church had fled in fear when Theodosius had arrived, but now they walked closer to see what was happening. Ambrose could see his friend Theodosius was truly sorry for what had happened. He had finally seen that it was his anger that was the problem. But could God forgive a man like Theodosius? The church was looking now to Ambrose. How far did God's forgiveness go? Ambrose touched his friend's shoulder. God can forgive anyone if their heart is truly repentant. Theodosius was repentant, and he passed a law that no capital punishment could ever be handed out unless at least 30 days after the verdict to make sure no one was ever punished in anger. This law lasted longer than Rome. It would only be a short time until Rome would fall, but as Rome eventually turned into Europe and then Western civilization, even today this law is held, although under different names. In the West, no one can be sentenced to death and have that sentence carried out in less than 30 days, even today. Giving the courts time to make sure that they have not given out an order in anger and haste and making sure that everyone's rights, even the rights of the people who have committed evil, are held. This idea comes in the memory of the families killed that day at the Chariot Games. Ambrose would go down in church history as one of the greatest leaders, he ended once and for all the Aryan churches. He ended paganism. But that is actually not what he's most famous for. What he's most famous for is mentoring a young man who had come to his church to debate him, but it instead found Jesus. And that young man was Augustine. In our next episode, we're going to be talking all about the life and influence of Augustine. If you like this podcast, please share it with others. We really, as a church, need to know our church history. And make sure you don't miss out on the next one by subscribing to this podcast. But for more podcast blogs and videos, go to lauraleesiemens.com. And to learn how you can have your very own podcast, visit lauraleeproductions.com. I'll see you next week.